Hi there, Dr. B here with your Modules 5 and 6 clarifying lecture. Um, just some announcements. We'll talk about your inner teach and then we'll talk about your cyber app. Um, hopefully you all are working on your final project because the final project for cyber app is due in Module 7, not Module 8. They do take a while to grade. That's why they're due in Module 7. Um, it's allowing me to make sure that you get your feedback before you move on to your next class. Um, I will say this, that a few of you kind of threw hints that you were listening to past clarifying lecture podcasts. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, I encourage it. Um, and it will help you refine your work. That won't work as well with the cyber app because we did make some substantial changes this time around. Um, so, you know, feel free to listen to old clarifying lectures um, and see if they help you refine your work. Um, for inner teach, I want to make sure that you understand that I do not want you using first person because I want this to make sure that inner teach is always coming from we, not from I. Okay? Even if you did collaborate, I'm still taking some points off because I want that we. Um, so, you know, if somebody has, for example, an example from their own practice and they say, you know, let's say Joe Beth says, you know, they had this happen. I want that to be, we discussed a situation that Joe Beth had, okay? Sounds semantics, but it really, I want you to practice that collaborative and the collaborative writing because that's going to be something that's going to come up as you write your treatment plans, as you attend meetings, all those types of things. Um, I really want you to start thinking about this as real world, not as therapy. Okay, this is the bio. This is the chemistry. This is the stuff that you will use in your therapy, but you'll also use it to understand your everyday interactions. Um, I was just in supervision and um, we recognized a pattern with my little corgi that um, every time I go on Zoom, she barks and I give her a treat. Boy, did I reinforce that behavior. That wasn't a therapeutic thing. I didn't you know, program for that in any way, shape, or form. It just happened, okay? So these are things that happen all around us. I saw that in CyberRat as well. Make sure that you are not reinforcing or punishing people. Um, reinforcing people clones them, and we're not in the business of cloning or changing people, um, and punishing um, basically kills them. Um, so remember that we reinforce and punish behavior we don't reinforce and punish people. Terminology. Very important to be extremely precise with this stuff. Shaping is not a catch-all term for learning. When you want to say shape, I want you to say teach or learn. When, same thing with extinction. Extinction, you can say decrease, but do not say extinguish unless you are using extinction. You shaping only when you are using shaping, extinction only when extinction is happening. Okay, so shaping teaches a brand new behavior, whereas fading teaches a brand new discrimination. All right, so let's talk a little bit about concurrent chains. Concurrent chains are networks of attached schedules that all occur simultaneously for different behaviors. So kind of think about it like a fiber optic network. Um, of, you know, or like a Wi-Fi network. Probably a Wi-Fi network would be better because there's no physical part to that. Um, 
where all this information is going back and forth on these different schedules and evoking different behaviors. And one schedule may start another schedule to um, begin. That's what concurrent chains are. So I think about it kind of like you would um, relational framing in that they're networks of schedules. You can also have competing contingencies. So this is where matching law comes in. You can have one concurrent chain that's richer than another one, and that's how we make choices. Um, so um, it really is gets into the nitty gritty of really how do schedules really work in the real world? Because very rarely are you going to see an actual like this is an FR1, this is a VR5. You're going to see these in combinations with each other. That's how our behavior is maintained. I'm seeing some things that I really need to hammer home. You gotta know the difference between an antecedent and a consequence. You gotta know these basic things. If you don't know them, it's gonna cause you problems in 623, 624, 625, even a little bit in 664. And when you go to take the exam, you're gonna be really, really lost. So this is the basis on which everything else, all your interventions are built. I need you to know the three-term contingency. Antecedents come before behavior. Different types of antecedents are STs, S-deltas, and motivating operations. Consequences come after the behavior. They are not necessarily punitive. They can be reinforcing or punishing. The only way that you know a relationship between a consequence stimulus and a behavior is what happens to behavior next time, okay? These are absolutely critical, critical, critical things you have to have to know. All right, um, let's talk a little bit about differentiation, discrimination, induction, and generalization. So differentiation is kind of the spread of effects. Um, Discrimination is the ability to respond in the presence of an SD and not in an S-delta and not when there is no um, stimulus control. So discrimination says, yeah, I see the sign that says no left turn, I don't make a left turn. If there is no sign, I can make a left turn. Um, if there's a sign that says, you know, left turn on arrow, I could go on the arrow. That's what discrimination is. Induction is novel behaviors that get added to a response class. You will also see this with extinction. So sometimes we call this, you know, response generalization in the applied literature. In the basic literature, it's induction. And what are inductive behaviors? For example, you know, somebody, you see somebody, you can utter a myriad of different greetings. So you can say, hi, hello, hey, what's up? Head nod, wave. All those types of things, those are inductive behaviors. They are novel behaviors that once reinforced end up in that same response class. Generalization is performing the same response to a variety of different SDs. So um, putting aside gender issues and gender um, you know, discussions and diversity for a moment, um, if you go into a restaurant you know, we still have bathrooms that are separated by males and females. And um, the signs are not always the same. And sometimes, you know, you see things in different languages and stuff like that. Yet, 
And sometimes it says women, sometimes it says ladies, sometimes it says men, sometimes it says gentlemen. But for the most part, we pick the right room based on, you know, our gender identity. And so that is generalization. We're generalizing to different SDs. Let's talk a little bit about equivalence. In module seven, you're gonna get into relational frame theory, which is an expansion of equivalence. I wanna talk about reflexivity because I think this is the one that confuses people the most. Reflexivity means A equals A. It means that this silver fork matches this silver fork. So it's identical matching, okay? It's that those things that are identical all hang together. Symmetry is where A equals B and B equals A. So that silver fork with the written word fork, you can match that to fork or you can match the fork to the word Either or works, that's symmetry. Transitivity is when the relations between stimuli emerge without training. So if I teach that this fork, the word fork, they match. I teach that the word fork and the spoken word fork match. And I say, go get me the fork. And you do that without training that's transitivity okay and those equivalence classes for the most part equivalence classes are frames of coordination or sameness there are other different types of relational frames um, opposition um, and a few others but that is the bread and butter of equivalence and then relational framing so let's talk a little bit about your inner teach module six so let's talk about joint attention. Joint attention is not a thing that kids do. If you've ever had somebody point and you look over where they're pointing and they say, look over there, you're engaging in joint attention. You can't engage in a communicative act without it. And only a few organisms do it. So if you use pointing with your dog, for example, they'll probably attend to that. Dogs engage in joint attention. Cats do not. Um, humans do. I believe I heard that dolphins do as well. Um, there was one um, documented case that dolphins showed um, equivalence, going back to the equivalence classes, but it's never been replicated. So only a few organisms do this kind of joint attention. And remember that adults engage in observational learning and joint attention, not just children. So if you've ever been in a novel environment, and you know, for example, a great example of this is when I went to Stockholm, and um, we had a, um, a dinner at the place where they give out the Nobel Prize. Well, look at me, I'm in a hoodie right now, right? That's not something that I usually do. I don't usually go out to fancy dinners, the places that are decked out in gold. Um, so what did I do? I watched what everybody else did and I did what they did. That's observational learning. Um, people drawing attention to here is the caviar. I don't need caviar, but you get the idea. That's joint attention. We do this all the time. And it's how we start to learn about ourselves. 
we learn about ourselves by other people's verbal and instrumental behavior. So if I say something, somebody reacts a certain way, I may say that in the future, I may not say that in the future. Um, and somebody says, you know, you're really loud. Now I have a rule. I'm loud. And based on my other interactions, my I'm loud might be, no, I'm not. Or it could be, I need to tone it down. Okay, so our verbal behavior, other people's verbal behavior starts to reinforce our rules about ourselves and also their instrumental behavior. And we start to attach words to things. Those words are also behavior. And they make up how we talk about ourselves, how we conduct ourselves. Let's talk a little bit about the um, verbal operant ones. Um, so first of all, pay attention to the details. Some of you are still doing therapy and RBT. I didn't ask for that. I asked for music and math, and I didn't ask for teaching. So let's talk a little bit about a um, man. So a man, let's say you're um, at a concert, and um, I happen to love Paul McCartney. When he does Hey Jude, he's like, sing along with me. He's like, people on the left side, people on the right side. Those are mans, okay? Mans are not requests. Mans specify the reinforcer. They don't have to be questions, okay? So mans are not requests, just like tacks are not necessarily comments. They contact some sort of stimulus. So um, I actually had this conversation with Charlie Catania, and we were saying, and he said, I cannot come up with a musical example of a tact. And I said, well, what about a theme song? You know, where, or the Olympics, when you hear, you know, let's say, you know, the United States National Anthem, that is tacting that those people from the United States are coming in or that they have won a medal. That's attacked. Um, so there are ways to think about this outside of that teaching and learning environment. Instructional control. If this was about a 50-50 split as to who got it and who didn't. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm hammering home that you don't have control. Okay, It's not you who has control. Stimuli have control. And when those stimuli are verbal, it's instructional control. When those stimuli are not verbal, then we're talking about general stimulus control. But instructional control has nothing to do with you being in control or earning anything at all. Okay? And I think that this is one of those things, it's like reinforcing, you know, people. What happens is, is that people say, you know, this, and then somebody gets a hold of that and they say, oh, well, you're out to control me. No, I'm not. I'm out to make sure that my instructions are good SDs for your behavior. That's a totally different thing, but it can, you know, um, contribute to maybe a poor reputation. Memory, remembering, these are those things that usually we say, oh, those are explanatory fictions. 
But what Catania is saying is that from a philosophical and conceptual viewpoint, not from a observable and measurable viewpoint, but from a philosophical and conceptual viewpoint, memory, remembering, recall are all behaviors. Memories are not things that are stored in your brain. And I saw this like continuing ed where someone's like, and this is how a thought is made. And they showed a synapse um, throwing neurotransmitters to another syn synapse. That's not how a thought is made. Okay, That's a behavior that's happening that is going on in the brain that is part of the behavior that's associated with recall. Okay, These are all behaviors. And that's why... You know, you can't really corrupt a memory, okay? What you can have is false memory syndrome because you might not engage in that recall behavior with a one-to-one -one correspondence because there may have been competing stimuli, competing reinforcers that went into it. But these aren't files that are stored somewhere. So you can't go in and find the neuron that allows you to recognize the word A because it doesn't work that way. And anybody who's really well-versed in neuroscience will also tell you that. Most of you got the idea of prior learning history with Stupid Susie. I do want you to think about it in terms of instructional control and rules. That Stupid Susie has been taught a rule that she is Stupid Susie. And that rules and rule governance and instructional control tend to be insensitive to changing contingencies. So... Although the contingencies have changed, the rule remains, okay? Let's talk about CyberRat a little bit, and then I got a really interesting question that I want to answer. Um, first of all, your CyberRats, you know, those of you who are taking into account my feedback each week, you're getting better and better and better and better. This is shaping. This is shaping at its finest. You're doing really well, and if you keep up that, that trajectory, and you use all the feedback I've given you, your papers should be great. I'm looking forward to that. They're gonna take me a while, but they should be great. Um, I wish Cooper would not have used the term desired behavior. So remember that Cooper and um, BALC, that they are more intervention focused. We are talking about things that happen to all behavior. So extinction is not extinction of undesirable behavior. It's just extinction of behavior. I extinguished um, a kid's entire PEC system in 10 minutes. That was not a desired behavior, an undesired behavior. That was me removing reinforcement from Mandy. Whoopsie. So remember that we're not talking about reinforcement gets you good behavior, extinction and punishment get rid of bad behavior. We're talking about these things and their effects on behavior. We're not putting value judgments on them. Okay, value judgments start to get into intervention. We're setting priorities and things like that. Um, behavior should never contact reinforcement in a temporal schedule. So a FT and a VT schedule in its purest form, the reinforcer should be delivered only contingent upon the passage of time. Not really as realistic, though. So what sometimes happens is that, you know, a response occurs 
and adventitiously or accidentally that response is you know is reinforced because a reinforcer happened to be delivered very close in time to it that's when we start to get what we call superstition okay that's what adventitious reinforcement is so we're not seeing contingencies per se we're seeing accidental contingencies being made I want you to understand why I'm having you use JAB articles. There's a couple reasons why I want you to use JAB articles and not Java. The first is that we're talking about principles and processes that happen to everybody. We're not talking about how to use these as interventions. That comes later. That comes in later courses. Okay. Right now we're learning what they are. We're going to use them later. So that's the first part. That's why I want you to use JAB and not Java. The other thing is that you will be expected as a BCBA to be able to use research to support your claims. If you are pulling lightly or you're going, Catania says reinforcement is good, or you're not using evidence-based practice, you're not practicing the thing that you're going to have to do down the line. I am an in-service practitioner. I see clients daily. I talk to clients' parents daily. I go to Java. I go to JAB. I use these evidence-based practices all the time. I put references in my treatment plans sometimes because if I'm looking at a problem behavior, what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm not quite sure what to do. I'm going to go into Java. I'm going to go into JAB and go, is there something in here that informs my practice? And I want you to practice that because you're going to do it. If you don't do it, that's not a good thing. Okay, so this is what I want you to really practice. Also remember that you shouldn't be introducing new things into your discussion that you haven't talked about in your background and significance. So again, think about this as a circle. This is what the literature says. According to the literature and Catania, this is what I expect to see. This is what I saw. Now the discussion is going to say, hey, do the things that I expected to see and what I saw, did they match? And is there an explanation if they didn't? That's what this all is about. Okay? All right, let's go to this question. I love this question. It says it's really not a super important question, but I like it. Just an observation. I watched Steve Hayes' TEDx talk where he uses the quote from this week's inner teaching assignment. I see how it relates to relational the frame theory. I know that this is his theory. Well, it's not necessarily his theory. It's a lot of different people who came together with that. This particular presentation included a lot of talk of how to address negative thoughts and change them. This seems so far removed from behavior analysis, even though I realize thinking is behavior and is more in line with counseling. Can these fields coexist? I know it certainly worked for him, but I'm curious for myself. I'm really having a hard time abandoning the skills I've learned from my counseling degree. This is a great question. Okay, so we got to take this in layers. So right now you're learning the basics of behavior analysis. And so what we're doing is that we're trying to break that idea that thoughts have to happen with behavior and really taking thoughts and saying thoughts are behavior in and of themselves. 
Now, what do we know about behavior? We know that chaining can happen. So we know that one behavior can be an SD for the next. So a thought could be an SD for a behavior. Totally possible. And so what um, Hayes has done and his colleagues, Kelly Wilson, Dermot Barnes Holmes, all these people, is that they're really looking at the area of rule governance, okay? So they're not looking at this like thoughts or changing thoughts or making thoughts different. What they're looking at is how rules, which typically present themselves as private events, serve as SDs for behavior. So it's not so much thoughts and cognition as it is private events. And these private events are formed through relational frames, they're formed through equivalence classes, and they become a network. And so what happens in, um, and what it doesn't say in Steve's stuff is that this is acceptance and commitment therapy or training is that what you're trying to do with this is that you're trying to, in, in practice, not in RFT, but in ACT, is that you're taking these rules, and there's multiple levels of rules, and looking at them as to whether or not they are helpful or unhelpful rules. What else do we know about rules? Rules are insensitive to current contingencies. So again, stupid Susie. You know, stupid Susie learned a rule that she's stupid and that she's unattractive and fat, okay? New um, information comes in, but it can't supersede that rule. So it's now become unhelpful. So now what do we do about it? And what Steve Hayes and his colleagues and the Matrix and all that kind of stuff have put together is how do we break some of these faulty rules and how do we learn new and more helpful rules? So really what they're doing is that they're really looking at that rule governance. Um, and what I say about Steve Hayes is that the brilliance of contextual behavioral science is that they have sold radical behaviorism to people who don't believe in ABA, um, who you know, say it's CBT and, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's not. It's radical behaviorism, and I think that's really, really cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, and um, looking forward to talking with you next time.